Welcome to the Impact on the Ground podcast series. I'm Tiia Sammalahti, CEO of whatimpact.com, a tech for good company with the mission to become the LinkedIn of CSR. In this podcast series, we'll dig deeper into what it takes to make an impactful change in our society. I'll give a voice to charities, social enterprises, companies, grant makers, individuals and government officials who all have one thing in common. They are keen to make a difference. We dive into practical solutions and observe the dynamics of those who have resources to give and those working with the beneficiaries on the ground. Let's start making an impact together. So today on Impact on the Crown, we have a guest who knows everything about grant giving. Uh, our author of a book called Modern Crown Making, Gemma Bull. Welcome, Gemma. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, amazing to talk to you about this grant giving. It's um, it's such a big topic and important topic. If we think about uh, the uh, billions of pounds are given to charities, social enterprises, and uh, you know unregistered community groups annually uh, in the UK to to solve all kind of environmental and social problems, but we yet know very little uh, about kind of how is it all done, and also then. Uh, if there are any kind of challenges in the grant making market that maybe could be solved or some uh, practices that could be improved. And uh, I guess you have lots of ideas about it because you wrote a book about it. But um, but uh, please uh, tell us about your background. What makes you passionate about grant giving? Well, actually, I got interested in grants after spending over 10 years working for charities. And I started working for charities because I got involved with an LGBT plus youth group uh, when I was at school. And that led to me undertaking uh, a master's in human rights and then working for a range of international charities. And it was while working for charities that I became more aware of these things we call grants, both in terms of writing applications for them and managing them. And after experiencing that, the highs and lows that come with that for quite a long time, I saw a job opportunity come up to work with a place called the National Lottery Community Fund, which is the largest community funder in the UK, uh, to support that organisation to try and make its funding more flexible and accessible. And I thought, wow, with all the sort of experiences I've had, that sounds like something that needs to happen. And so I ended up going and working there. And I was funding strategy director for quite a few years at the fund before um, my co-author and I, Tom Steinberg, decided to write this book about modern grant making that you mentioned. And it's a practical guide for any grant maker who's keen on improving their skills and their practices uh, and who's also interested in contributing to sort of wider reform efforts to try and make grant making more transparent, equitable and accessible, like I mentioned. And that's, I think, a, a interesting viewpoint that you look at it from the grant maker perspective and not just like, oh, here is how you apply for these grants. Uh, so, uh, so kind of uh, what we have learned in what impact Uh, com is that, you know, um, we've been doing quite a lot of research and surveys and stuff. And it, it is so that the, the organizations on the ground doing the beneficiary work are overwhelmed with the application processes, applying for different uh, grants, which may be sometimes very small. And then comparison to the workload, what you have to put into, there is like no sense and, and reporting back. But uh, let's define first, I mean, what is a grant? So everybody who is listening kind of <laughs> understands what is the difference between grant and just money donation? 
Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I think some people would say that um, some grants are donations because grants are effectively a way of giving money to something that an organisation is interested in. That could be a foundation, it could be a foundation run by a family, it could be a corporate foundation, it could be um, government giving away grants to try and have a particular impact. But the types of grants that organisations can give can be very different. You can have something called unrestricted funding, where a grant will be given that may have actually no no restrictions, like I said, in terms of how it should be spent. It's just given to an organisation or sometimes an individual person um, in line with the mission that that organisation has. Um, But you can also have restricted funding, uh, and that's funding where um, there are sort of strings attached to it. You know how you know you can only spend it on certain things within a certain deadline. Um, and even with any type of grant, unrestricted or restricted, the person or organisation giving the grant um, may want some things in return. <laughs> so they might want some monitoring data. They might want some uh, evaluation data. Um, so, so grants are a way of giving money to try and help something happen. But the types of grants are kind of infinite. And uh, people working for charities will have strong views on what kind of grants they prefer to get. Okay, so uh, what is uh, then uh, a difference for company uh, setting up a foundation or giving direct donations? What's the difference? What, why should they uh, consider these options? Yeah, good question. I think it very much depends on what any organization is trying to achieve, right? And that should help them think about, well, okay, is this a route we want to go down in terms of grants? Do we want to take more of an investor approach? What are we actually trying to achieve? And I think if an organization is is trying to support, um, in particular, nonprofit organizations or charities working in a particular field to keep doing what they're doing or to learn or to improve as well, then giving them flexible grants could be a really helpful way of doing that because of course there are a range of charities let's say operating in the UK where having sort of the notion of rolling income is just unrealistic right it it doesn't exist in terms of what they're trying to achieve so grants can actually be a really important way of helping them to get the money you know that they need to do their work so if you're an organization thinking about should I be investing in something should I be considering grants what type of grants that really needs to kind of tie back to your your mission, your CSR approach, um, what are you looking to do? And that should help to sort of define, right, okay, what's the potential approach we might want to take here? Yeah. Okay, so uh, when you've been writing this book, you probably interviewed a lot of people and oh, yeah. research, not just based on your own uh, experience. So what is what, what is your message uh, in the book for grant makers? What are what are the challenges uh, the, those applicants are facing, and uh, what should uh, grant makers do about it? Just a few questions there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, why not? You know, throw them at me. That's great. They're they're, they're really important ones. So so the, the book, okay, modern grant making that Tom Steinberg and I developed is is very much based on. Um, just under 100 perspectives of grant makers in this country, US, Canada, uh, far wider than that, as well as people working for very different types of nonprofits. Um, one of the things that, that we realized was that while there's an awful lot of books written about philanthropy, 
um, they're often written sort of with the needs and interests of billionaires or people who sit on boards and sort of what they're interested in. And there's actually very little by way of practical advice and tips for everyday grant maker. I mean, there's one Darren Walker in terms of the Ford Foundation, but there's hundreds of grant makers that work there. So we started off by testing that sort of assumption. Do you think there's a need for practical support about how to do this grant making job well? And we got lots of positive feedback saying yes. And so we started doing interviews and it's from the interviews that we developed up actually um, how the book is structured. So the book responds to key questions that grant makers commonly raised. You know, um, how do we make a better experience for sort of grant seekers and um, grantees? How do I lead well? How do I lead a grant making team well? How do I help develop, you know, a really effective strategy? What are the values that should underpin grant making? So that's actually how the book is structured in response to what people were saying they wanted more information about. And, And indeed, the book is absolutely sort of full of case studies, quotes, opinions, each chapter ends with a very practical checklist for people to sort of refer to. Tom and I do say on occasion, you know, this is what we actually think, but it's less about us. It's more about what people were saying they need. Tom and I both have a design background. And so we're very used to sort of researching people's needs, communities' needs. And so the book is developed in response to grant maker needs. It's not a sort of editorial opinion piece. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's cool. Um about this uh, kind of grant maker, kind of, how would I say, motivation and interest. Uh, in our research, uh, the recipient organizations, the charities applying for them uh, are sometimes, um, you know, they feel kind of that they are neglected. Uh, they don't get any responses. They are wasting their time. Nobody's advising and stuff. What is the reason for this kind of experience? In oh, that yes. side of you the have table. A whole chapter on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what is the what is the reason? Why why do they feel that uh, that way? And if the grant makers recognize this, uh, why don't they change something? Or is this a very challenging thing? Yeah, no, very good question. So, we have a whole chapter, as I mentioned, on um, redesigning your grant making, both kind of services, systems, all sorts of stuff. Um, and so, often, I think some of these issues are caused by the fact that funders don't see themselves as providing a service to grant seekers and grantees some funders still think that people are quote unquote lucky to get their money and if you have that mindset you're less likely to develop if you have an application process a process that's actually accessible useful easy for anyone to complete you'll probably concoct something that's operationally easier for you and so I think oftentimes that can be one of the main problems you know actually let's take an online application form um it may never have been designed with the people that are meant to use it yeah <laughs> you know there are also a, a kind of a shockingly large number of foundations that still don't have accessible websites even if they do have forms online so this is all down to sort of not recognizing that you're actually providing a service of sorts and we suggest in the book very strongly and we heard it very strongly from the people we interviewed that more funders not only should adopt this sort of service mindset but they should also really think of themselves working in partnership with charities, because actually if the charities didn't exist or movements or networks or whoever they're funding, what would they be doing? So it's sort of a lofty attitude, um, kind of you've got to scale our fortress walls, as it were. It's just unhelpful for everyone concerned. So that's that's one element of it. Um, the good news is through developing the book, we actually saw lots and lots of examples of funders and grant makers who are trying to do things very differently. So I think traditional grant making, if I can put it like that, 
does have a problem with sort of not understanding that they should be providing a service. But there are lots of organisations who have decided that that's important because they've recognised that we can't achieve our mission if we're not actually able to kind of find and support and work with the organisations that would help us to do that. So actually, that's on us. We need to think about the power imbalance and how we design things to make it easier for the people that we want to work with to, um, you know, apply, get to know us, build relationships. And so what's really fascinating is you've got examples of sort of new funding organisations that have been developed recently, such as Resourcing Racial Justice in this country, who have taken a very different approach to sort of um, seeking kind of match funding and and developing what they're doing, um, which is more kind of based on interviewing funders and their values rather than sort of um, the other way around, which are funders are used to interviewing and kind of questioning applicants. Uh, But then you've also got organisations that um, have sort of been around a while, but that are actually recognising, like I said, we want to do things differently because we're sort of hearing that we need to to make a, a real difference. And there's a bit of a reckoning going on in grant making and philanthropy. Um, and they're, they're sort of um, tuned into that rather than sort of head in, head in the sands. And so there's a whole range of funders who have um, taken sort of design skills and um, more participatory approaches and, and sort of use that in terms of changing and improving what they do, right down from community foundations through to um uh, you know, uh, lottery distributors. So it's not all doom and gloom. Um, I think there are people and organisations that are changing. Uh, and, you know, campaigns like hashtag fix the form, which have been all about trying to encourage funders to show questions in their application forms up front, uh, hashtag shift the power, hashtag funding so white. Um, things like this are really important because one of the problems you mentioned sort of, I think, briefly in one of the questions was, um, I would say grant making does have a general issue with openness and transparency. There actually aren't many incentives. (laughs) There aren't many carrots or sticks to sort of encourage uh, funders to sort of be as transparent perhaps as they could be about what they're doing and why. And so these campaigns and these initiatives that I've mentioned uh, and movements like the Grant Givers Movement in the UK are fantastic because they help to shine a light um, both within grant making and from outside about this isn't good enough. Um, it's probably never been good enough, but it's definitely not good enough now. Uh, and we all need to change and make it better. Otherwise, grant making sort of at risk uh, of sort of falling behind and not making this positive contribution that so many people think and want it to make. Yeah, so we at What Impact uh, have tried to tackle this with our platform product uh, a lot. Uh, this, uh, this first of all, application process uh, that it would be streamlined and in on our website, uh, charities and social enterprise are applying uh, with their profiles, which are quite extensive, but have also open data pulled to them. And it's a public domain. So uh, there is the transparency aspect on both on applicants, but then also the grant maker is exposed in the grants and the criteria right there uh, for everyone. So they wouldn't be like hidden grants. And this kind of automated like matchmaking and you can put be put on the short list, you can be rejected instantly, you can, you know, you even get the grant and then you report back on the same platform with the semi-automated uh, impact reporting, that's the efficiency. But what we have faced when we've been promoting this to grant makers, it seems that their interest sometimes is not to make their work more efficient because they have a job to do. They don't consider that maybe saving costs or maybe saving costs and time from the other side is kind of their job. And that has been 
kind of a little hurdle here in terms of uh, you know uh, growing the number of users on on, on grant makers because they don't see that uh, important. Did this factor uh, somehow came about in your interviews? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, absolutely. One of the issues I think sometimes is that funders, um, even if they do recognise that, let's say, there's externalised costs, if you like, in terms of the sort of um, processes that they create, particularly for, you know, charities that may be wanting to apply to them, um, they may recognise this but they don't feel the pain. It's the charities that do. Um, so I think that's what makes it hard, like I said, around Carrot and Sticks to encourage funders to think about, um, you know, what could they do? What should they do to make the whole process easier? I think what can work is um, showing funders um, very clear examples of where this is going wrong rather than a, in a general sense. So when I worked at the community fund, um, we gathered a lot of uh, very useful and important information about how applicants were navigating the website, trying to answer questions from all the sort of ways that you would expect observation, um, tracking how people were using the website. Obviously, we couldn't see who they were, but we could see what they were trying to do. And actually, you know, from inside, being able to discuss that with colleagues and, and show them how people were struggling, basically, struggling to use the processes that we put in place. I found that that did work and can work but they funders need to see it rather than sort of just be told generally they need to be shown directly how what they have created specifically isn't working as well as it could and then through that you can also find ways to say like you were just mentioning and by the way you might have had this process for 10 years but it's actually wasting you a lot of time and money as well and you can sort of introduce that but I think with with funders um everybody likes to think they're unique and so showing them the unique failings, if you like, of what they're doing can be a way to help sort of change hearts and minds. I think a general conversation about externalized costs uh, is very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of um, it's kind of surprising because then in the kind of like a commercial company world, you know, it's obviously it's the bottom line that matters. And you kind of try to make admin costs you know, reduced and you take a lot of systems to support your efficiency. But uh, in this seg segment, it, it seems that there is not that kind of pressure. And I would kind of uh, hear shout to the trustees then, you know, and see that, you know, uh, it's their job to make sure that the funding pot, what you have would mainly go to the social and environmental and cultural value provided rather than their own admin because then again many crime makers don't want to fund the charities admin <laughs> but they are funding their own that's that's another that's another huge issue I think there's a couple of things there if I could just uh, yeah, build on what yeah, you're saying um so I think it it really depends on the funder again if you've got leaders at all different stages including people on the board who really do think that their, their ability to sort of achieve their mission, their goals is intimately tied in the ability to provide a good service and support partners to do good work, then they will have a very different attitude often um, to the notion of improvement, learning, um, than to others who just don't think like that at the moment and are very used to sort of um, putting in place uh, systems that just accrete over time. Do they just get more and more stuff built onto them <laughs> rather than, you know, having a review and going, actually, who's this designed for? Is, that, is this benefiting anybody? On the admin point for funders, it's an interesting one. I mean, of course, there are funders, I'm sure, that could be more efficient in terms of what they're doing. But there's also some funders 
who are potentially the opposite. You could have a scenario where there's a funder that wants to be very community-based, place-based, but also um, in their mind thinks, well, obviously we should be giving the vast, vast majority of our um, funding um, via grants, but sometimes that can lead funders to not make the right choices about their own people. And actually you need people with you know, skills and um, time to be able to build community relationships. So I think, again, it's a bit like what we were just saying about you know, what should organisations do? Should they give grants? Should they think about other ways of supporting sort of charitable endeavours? I think, you know, as a funder, it very much your you, the way that you work must relate to your mission. and You've got to design it like that. And that runs right through from sort of your board and strategy, uh, the people that you know make decisions every day through to how you develop your application form, if you have one, ideally. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a very, very, very good point that uh, also, you know, it's not just given that if you are, let's say, a foundation, you have to just like put out grants. You can, of course, build uh, even training systems and, and different kind of courses. You can do co-funding uh, practices and, and various different kind of things or even uh, lend some money for a commercial uh, projects or something because a lot of charities and social enterprises need Yes, grants, but they also uh, are, are looking for money that they can pay back eventually yeah. because they, they do trade and they will have uh, like even trading income. Uh, so they are looking for social impact lenders as well. So there are a lot of ways to support for sure. Um, you mentioned the restricted and non-restricted grants. And uh, since we've been working with charities so many years and, you know, um, you know, giving advice and a lot of, uh, of course, companies who help through us do also skills-based volunteering. And what we have come across that sometimes it might be quite large charity, but they have really, really tiny, like the administrative or voluntary income budget. So then everything is so restricted that even if they have to buy a 50 pound software, they just literally don't have money for that 50 pound because it's not part of any of the grant funding projects and they have to report every single bus ticket back to the grant funder that, yeah, this 250 went to this bus ticket. So it's, it's very, very uh, ad, admin heavy model, this restriction. What do you think about this, this kind of a scenario? I think my answer won't surprise you. Um, <laughs> almost the, the number one thing that, that we heard in developing the book Modern Grant Making was that both actually grant makers on the whole and people working for nonprofits thought that unrestricted funding should just be the norm for most funders. There are some scenarios where, you know, certain types of restrictions maybe make sense. But, but for the vast majority of funders and, and grants, um, unrestricted funding could just be so useful for the organisations. You know, what you described, unfortunately, is, is reality. And so in the book, there's a chapter that's called What Are the No-Brainers of Modern Grant Making? And number one in that list is more funders should give unrestricted funding. There was a recent report by um, an organisation known as IVAR uh, just this, this month, actually, which is very interesting because it's all about how are funders doing unrestricted funding? And there's some really interesting case studies in there that relate to what trustees think about it, as well as you know everyday grant makers and nonprofit organisations. And, and there, are, there are funders like the Peter Cundall Foundation who relatively recently moved from a more restricted model to an unrestricted model. And so there's, there's lots of uh, possibilities here 
um, in terms of how you can do it, even if it's not the way that you were originally set up. And it would be um, one way to reduce some of the externalized costs that we were just talking about. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> um, as I said, I started off working for charities. Um, you know, the amount of applications that a sort of regular charity has to put in just to stay alive is enormous. Um, because of the competitive nature of funding, you don't know what will be successful, what won't. Um, the, the number of applications you can supply for unrestricted funding is very small compared to restricted. And all the restricted um, elements are uh, sort of variations on a theme, different percentages for different things. You're trying to put together this sort of patchwork, which is just not the true story of your work. Yeah. And so what funders are doing um, is that too often they are encouraging charities to have to concoct a different reality to serve their needs rather than actually saying um, we want to help you because we actually both have shared goals. How can we help you? Yeah. And I guess uh, everybody is looking for kind of like co-funding opportunities in that sense. That's a very popular theme that you, you know, you want other other organizations to invest in and at the moment uh you know kind of the company market is of course coming strongly uh because of the csr programs are developing there there has to be a social mission within any organization but also the uh, government procurement policy note that uh to uh, you know came to an effect early this year companies have to deliver social value uh for if they are bidding for government tenders or working as a contractor for government so companies are strongly coming to the market which has been traditionally funded by grant makers and what we see is that of course that company might actually give 50,000 pound worth of IT services for free yeah that could be their donation which would cost them less than 50,000 they wouldn't give 50,000 maybe as money but they could do the work But if the charity has a restricted funding and they had marked down that 50,000 has to be outsourced IT services, they couldn't change it to some other cost. Yeah, so they couldn't take the 50,000 service package because they will be losing the funding because they wouldn't be doing that, what they described in the application, maybe one and a half year before or something. So, so there should be flexibility. So the charity could be more agile, also taking in free resources, which might not be money, but they might be skills, products and services. And I think that's kind of one aspect that should be considered that uh, if you get something for free, why would you pay for it? Because that money can be then put into other use. But yeah, well, you've just described one of the major issues of, of restricted funding, which is it, it is it is not a model um, that by definition can help you respond to need and adapt. Uh, and actually, you know, many of these organizations we're talking about, they are regularly all the time responding to people in community you know, needs that they're, you know, that they're working with. Um, So that's that's a, that's a major issue. I mean, it may be the case with with some funders that you could actually say, look, this opportunity's come up and have that conversation. But with some, of course, that that still wouldn't be possible. And that is why, you know, as I said in the book, the number one no brainer of modern grant making is give unrestricted funding um, if you can. And if you're a funder and you're just kind of coming to these conversations, just just start to really investigate and explore why do we have these restrictions? Why did they come about? What do we need them for? Do we need them? Because as I mentioned before, in terms of sort of application processes and, and sort of funding systems, things can often accrete over time because there aren't those processes put in place to review uh, and particularly review with the people who are meant to be using these systems and services. And so it, sort of the same goes for restricted funding. 
why is it like this? Does it need to be like this? Is it helping us to keep achieving our mission? What are we hearing from our grantees about how useful this funding is? We, um, we've been, uh, well, we as a company, but the whole market, I, I, I think, has been really pushing charities and social enterprises to better measure and report on the impact. And it's been, you know, like really kind of hyped up by all umbrella bodies, their training organizations that you have to report on impact, you have to measure, da, 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 because otherwise you won't be getting fund, funding. How do grant makers see this? Are they up to date themselves? Yeah, <laughs> another, another question that's very, very good and quite difficult in a way. Um, I can share what we learned from the book. I wouldn't describe myself as a sort of impact or evaluation expert, just to be completely, completely honest. I mean, in terms of funders, again, it, it depends on um, how their grant making is being designed in terms of what they what they ask for. Often funders separate this notion of monitoring from impact. So monitoring is kind of data on, um, you know, outputs, numbers of yes, people. Yes that kind of thing, which can also have its flaws. And then the impact side is often associated with, with outcomes. I think one of the things that I think more funders could do is recognize that they're almost always contributing to something. You know, you were talking about companies before that might have 50,000 to offer in terms of skill, or perhaps it could be a grant. I mean, 50,000 pounds is a lot of money on one hand, but on the other going towards some huge social injustice, maybe a drop in the ocean. So when it comes to sort of impact, I think funders could be a little bit more humble sometimes there. Um, in, in the book, we have a chapter that's called What Do I Do About Research? And some of the key learnings that um, we included in that from speaking with all these, these grant makers and people working for nonprofits was that um, it you know evidence and research, it all comes down to where you work and the kind of culture of the organization and what you're expected to do. So for some funders um, that are very data-driven and sort of focused on evidence, let's say like the Education Endowment uh, Fund in the UK, um, they will have a different set of skills when it comes to research and evidence and a different set of expectations than a very small family foundation might or a very sort of localized place-based uh, funder. And that's, that's fine. One of the main issues that we came across was actually, and this may surprise you and some people or not, um, many grant makers felt that their organization didn't actually support them to sort of improve their own research skills and to actually have the time to be able to review the evidence base when they were making decisions on, on types of grants. Um, and that sort of sometimes wasn't built into the process. Of course, in some cases, that's what people do all the time. But oftentimes people were saying we're so snowed down with all this admin and bureaucracy that the idea that I can, you know, look up the evidence base for however many grants every time, it's just not designed like that, which is in a way a bit shocking, but is apparently a reality. Another thing that we found was that um, one of the things that's very common in grants is that a funder might say, um, yes, we'll give you a grant for X. Um, have 10% to do monitoring and evaluation. Um, now, for some charities, that might be okay. But for those that are actually working on something that um, does require a different level of research to understand the potential impact, you know, maybe there needs to be a control study um, or a different type of study because of the work that's already been undertaken in that, in that space. Um, that is a bit of a problem potentially we we suggest and actually we think funders should take more responsibility and work with the organizations to um support them uh to think about the kind of evidence and research that they might want to undertake but then the funder 
can pay for and support a third party, an expert third party to do that. Sometimes there's too much expectations on charities to mark their own homework, which which may not help in terms of the wider evidence debate. Now, we're not suggesting there that um, we think that, you know, organisations shouldn't be in control of their own learning or, or their own data or their own improvement. Of course not. We're just saying for some things, um, funders, we think, too often have taken a bit of a lax attitude and just passed the burden of evidence and impact onto, onto their grantees rather than thinking with their grantees, what is the evidence in this space? How can we work with you to contribute to, the, contribute to this evidence space? What's missing? What's the next study? Um, you know, that isn't necessary for a one-off uh, community party, but it might be for quite a serious study about what can help to prevent youth violence, for instance. Yeah, definitely. And this impact uh, measurement is, of course, very tricky because it depends what is the KPI you're measuring. <laughs> you might be measuring a wrong KPI uh, kind of related to the impact you're trying to make. And, and that then, of course, derails the whole, whole kind of a situation of analysis. So it, it is very, very tricky. Uh, but I also kind of uh, would like to remind that where why the impact reporting and actually measurement was originally uh, kind of uh, kind of lifted up as an important topic is of course the learning of a charity of Indeed. their own work. Yes. So it's a secondary than reporting to some funder kind of what your results it, it, are. It should but, be, but I think sometimes it yeah. doesn't feel like that, does it? Yeah. 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 So it's it's kind of like you should be learning. And also, uh, you know, like uh, we have uh, uh, we have demonstrated very many cases when we, we um, we've been talking with charities and there might be even negative impact or something. But it's actually either it then helps the charity to do things better right. or it might reveal that there is a need for a totally other kind of service. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and kind of. That is a positive thing. It's yes, amazing absolutely. to have negative impact. And uh, even uh, when we were doing our impact reporting, somebody says, who would fill in this negative impact like a data field? And I thought, of course, it has to be filled. And if you say that everything is just dancing on roses and we were doing everything perfectly, nobody believes, it, believes in that because life is not perfect. There will be something that uh, came about as negative, but then what do you learn from it? Or is there something new that you could develop in order to tackle that negative? Because it might be that the best and good outcomes anyway overlap the negative like multiple times, but you just have to then manage the negative a bit of things. But yeah, very, very tricky. And uh, uh, I think, yes, uh, I sympathize also with grant makers, like you said, in this um, case that, you know, they are burdened with thousands of applications and reading them through. And of course, uh, do, you, do you think that the good bit writing, I would say, grant bit writing is the key here? Uh, if, if they don't check your evidence, you could be just writing really nice applications. Well, I think, I think it depends on the funder. I mean, I've certainly spoken to um, both, again, grant makers and, and people working for nonprofits that have sort of said, well, the best person with a pen, metaphorically, is going to you know, win the grant. And if you've got a professional fundraiser or you do this or you do that, it, it really depends on, it depends on the funder and it depends how they make decisions. I mean, some, some grant makers... Um, it isn't just kind of remote application based. They have conversations. Uh, they, you know, also some um, give power away through more participatory methods um, in all different kind of shapes and sizes. So it really depends on the funder and their approach. But I do think there is an issue with um, 
how applications, if they're written, are presented. And I've certainly sat myself in meetings where people have commented on spelling and you know, haven't recognised their own biases. And actually, again, in the book, we have um, a story about how a funder made a wrong as an organisation that they probably should have done based on, you know, what they were interested in because of assumptions and biases they had about how an application was written. Yeah. And I, I guess like even me as a person with having English as a second language, uh, I, I sometimes, you know, read, you know, there will be uh, mistakes and uh, it something doesn't look like perfect. But because of lack of time, you know, I, I cannot ask everybody to uh, check or somebody to check every single email, for instance, that I'm sending just because everything has to be correct. You have to kind of trust, you know, the recipient's kind of understanding of the situation that somebody might be dyslectic, somebody has second language or third language or whatever. And, and it's not about the, how the thing is written. It's about the impact and what kind of work. The, the charity actually delivers on the ground. And uh, to be honest, I would be very worried that if you do very impactful youth work, for, for instance, and also uh, work somewhere with, uh, with people who are, have really difficult life situations, you suddenly would be the best writer in the world and very good in all kind of admin because yeah. these kind of skills don't go together. You make a very <laughs> good point, but you make a very good point. I mean, you know, how would there be a correlation between how effective somebody is at providing youth work and sort of like, you know, no spelling and typos in an application? I mean, they don't. <laughs> but the issue is that for so much of grant making, everything is sort of um, built on the written word. And why is it <laughs> when actually the work that's being supported is, is so different? And so I do think sometimes we do need to step back and really question the fundamental principles and assumptions underpinning things. I mean, the answer for that is because it's convenient for funders, right? Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's why I applaud um, funders and organisations that are really seriously questioning everything they do from the investments that they have, the history of the organisation, if that's relevant, through to, you know, how they work day to day with people, how they have conversations, you know, what kind of application form do we have? What, what are we asking in terms of sort of monitoring and impact? Um, what's our culture like at the funder? Is it how we want it to be based on the kind of brand we have and how we talk about ourselves? I really applaud those funders. Um, and I want uh, ideally more funders to question themselves rather than just continue as things have always been because as you said um, how things have always been um, doesn't really um, support um, sort of accessibility and equity. Well I think it's a good statement end statement uh, for this podcast Thank you, Chema, so much. And um, where can people buy this book, Modern Grant Making? Sure. Well, people can find out more at moderngrantmaking.com. So that's the website that um, includes info on all the chapters and gives you information about how you can buy it. Okay. All right. And Gemma Bull, you you are found on LinkedIn if somebody wants to approach you. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and on so, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for this uh, conversation. And I'm sure uh, this conversation continues in social media and, and so on. And on the channels that we will be sharing uh, this podcast. And, and uh, we will be also sharing this as a YouTube uh, interview. Thank you so much. And yeah, speak to you soon. Thank you very much.